Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I am Chris Steyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Heck yeah, you are. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, you came in hungry, not just for broadcasting excellence, but also for a nice piece of fruit. And consequently... Well, I was not hungry for a piece of fruit, but that was all that was scrounged up. All that AEI could afford you at this moment was a nice piece of fruit. And, And by the way, fruit is like fish. I always feel obliged to say a nice piece of fish or a nice piece of fruit because you feel like you need to dress it up a little bit because it's not what people wanted. But anyway, and the podcast studio smells delightfully of citrus oil. It smells like the best Uber I've ever I was very skeptical, but it turned out to be a nice piece of fruit. Nice piece of fruit. Way to go. I was very skeptical. Well, you know what else is nice? That we have breaking news to start the front page. Breaking news to start the front page. Okay, you were right, and I was wrong. I felt certain that the Secret Service of the United States of America would indeed, for the sake of their own credibility, find the cocaine dropper who left his or her cocaine in Oh, the you White are House. one gullible mofo. I, well, I just thought the pressure on them would be enormous to come to a conclusion. But here's the reporting just before we began from the Hill— Secret Service is ending its investigation into the discovery of cocaine at the White House after failing to identify a suspect. Lawmakers briefed on the matter, disclosed Thursday today. Emerging from a closed-door meeting at the Capitol SCIF, lawmakers on the House Oversight Committee said the probe will officially end on Friday. The Secret Service is ending their investigation tomorrow. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene told reporters. Basically, they told us that the investigation will be over tomorrow. They don't know who it is, said Tim Burchett of Tennessee. I read the CNN article. CNN broke this story and they give no indication in the article that anybody was interviewed in this probe, that it was an intensive investigation in any way. I have to say now, because I don't think it was, but there is absolutely no skepticism from the media about, uh, you know, maybe that the White House didn't want a very thorough investigation here. But also, so... If there's no skepticism there as to how comprehensive the investigation was, shouldn't there be a little concern in the press about the Secret Service's capabilities here? Yeah, I think Um, we should all be concerned if the Secret Service cannot get to the bottom of this one. I think at a minimum. I still do not think that this belonged to Hunter Biden. And I think for Republicans, as a matter of spin and PR, what you describe is a much more fruitful avenue for them to follow which is to talk about competence of the Secret Service if they cannot indeed identify. I guess what I thought was, given the national security apparatus, that people coming in and out of the White House, that there's facial recognition scanning, that that there was more than this and that it would be easier to track the movements, and I kind of Of course they could find this out if they wanted to, I I assume. I feel like they could. Of course. And 
the thing, I, and I, the other thing I heard people say was, well, people are going in and out of the building every day. And, and also, it's just a baggie of cocaine. Like, why, why, why did they even call it in? It's, it, it, but they couldn't have known what, right. what it was when they found it. And it is concerning. You and don't know what it is. You're right. Lately, yeah. Of course. So I totally understood why it was called in. It's a suspicious white powder abandoned at the White House. Like, and, and I would also, be concerned if, on, if I found it. If you're it. on duty at the White House and you come across cocaine, what are you going to do with it? You're going to tell somebody. You're not, unless you are a cokehead and you pocket it, I think that that's the logical thing. And to to give the potential benefit of, to give the benefit of the doubt, it also may be that the apparatus which could determine this is not the apparatus available to the Secret Service. And that maybe the, you know, nat, the, maybe the uh, NSA or somebody could find out, but that law enforcement can't find out. I don't know. But it's this this will this is this is bad news for Biden and the administration because Republicans are going to, if you if you'll allow me, pounce, continue to pounce and up to the point of potential overreach to get all of the tropes into well, one sentence. I do think there are questions from the press that are not being asked here about does it raise some internal concerns for you all that you couldn't figure out the perpetrator of this crime? There is some in from prominent mainstream voices, some criticism, though, of the Biden administration and the president himself these days. What of it? Well, I feel like everyone on the face of the planet saw the Maureen Dowd, Maureen Dowd, excuse me, column over the weekend in The New York Times with the headline, it's seven grandkids, Mr. President. And she writes about her Republican sister with whom she says she agrees about Joe Biden refusing to adopt or, you know, take ownership of Hunter Biden's daughter by London Roberts. And Dowd writes, Joe Biden's mantra has always been that of the absolute most important thing is your family. It's the heart of his political narrative. Empathy born of family tragedies has been his stock in trade. Callously scarring Navy's life just as it gets started undercuts that. And she concludes that the president can't defend Hunter on all his other messes and draw the line at accepting one little girl. You can't punish her for something she had no choice about. The Bidens should embrace the life Hunter brought into the world, even if he didn't consider her mother, quote, the dating type, which is what Hunter Biden has said about her. And I thought that this was of a piece with an Axios story about Biden screaming his head off at AIDS. And it was about... Essentially, Biden losing his temper at close aides and cursing at them. And the headline was Old Yeller, colon, Biden's private fury. And I do think that these two things like grouped together are about Biden's public image over time, like slipping the image he's tried to present to the public of an amiable, affable, likable, family oriented guy. And I do think that over time, these stories are taking a toll and people are learning he may not exactly be the person, the man that he's been presenting to the public for all of these years, the, which is why I thought that those stories were both those were both good and important stories. I, I thought the spin efforts on the yelling story where it was like, oh, it's a rite of passage. And until he's yelling, you don't know you, you're trusted until he tells you to, you know, go bleep right. yourself. Yeah. And I think. Biden had a reputation for having a temper, has always had a reputation for having a temper. We go back to him challenging the guy to push-ups 
and saying that he has a much higher IQ. That was 40 years ago. So I think he's always been vain. I think he's always had that. I noted the pushback on... So the reason the Maureen Dowd column is so significant is that Maureen Dowd is coming at Biden from Biden's supposed strength. She is an Irish Catholic woman who embraces the working class, blue collar roots of the Northeastern Democratic Party. That's a good point. I had not thought about that. It's coming at Biden from the place where he's supposed to be from. And that makes it hard. And of course, Maureen Dowd is a superb writer and really hit him where he lives. Here was the pushback from the New Republic and its editor, Michael Tomaski, who says, what do Bidenomics and the president's grandchildren have to do with each other? Everything. There's an appalling double standard in how the political press covers the Democrats and Republicans today. Now, I offer this for a couple of reasons. One, to Republicans, I would t- I would say, read this so that you can understand how progressives also believe the press is biased against them, right? Republicans believe that the press is biased against them. Progressives believe that the press is biased against them too. And it is a law, it, it is a over, over, it takes a long time to make its point. But Tomaski's point is, why do I juxtapose those two seemingly unrelated developments? Because they may not be so unrelated after all. Media coverage of both tells us a lot about the political culture we inhabit today. It's a culture that has been shaped and defined by the political right. Did you hear that? That you live in a political culture shaped and defined by the American right works almost entirely to their advantage. Were you aware of that, Eliana, that the that the political culture works almost entirely to the advantage of the right? Tell me more. In, In some, we live now in a political culture where the party that is trying to uphold some standards and values gets judged and punished because it sometimes falls short of those standards and values. While the party that makes no effort among along those lines gets away with everything because no one expects any better of it in the first place. Let's just be aware, though, of the imbalance this creates. While Biden is trying to do stuff, Republicans don't do anything. Cut taxes. That's about it. Oh, and repeal the biggest expansion of health care in a half a century. But the party has no domestic economic agenda and hasn't for years. And because they're not trying to do anything, nobody expects anything of them. So they skate. And on top of that, the right wing press, which wouldn't utter one positive syllable about Biden if the GDP grew 10 percent while he simultaneously cured Alzheimer's and brought democracy to North Korea, hammers at Biden relentlessly, which further advances people's negative perceptions. This is and I'm going to go ahead and use that phrase. The permission structure by which progressives excuse all manner of misdeeds, because this is a perfect encapsulation of the worldview that allows people to deviate from norms, to violate standards, because the other side doesn't do it either, right? And you could read the same thing from Tucker Carlson or American Greatness or whatever. You could you could find similar sentiments on the other side, which say, here we are trying to do the right thing. The other side is never punished for doing the wrong thing. Why should we be held to these standards? And the inability for Michael Tomaski to say the correct thing, which is what Maureen Dowd said, which is this is really unfortunate, right? This is a really unfortunate thing. It would also be reasonable for Michael Tomaski or anybody on the left to say that the president is, does not seem like he's in a real good place these days, right? He does not seem like he is doing the job. But instead, 
it is this, this, this long tissue of excuses. And I only bring it all up to say, whether you're on the, whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right, that, sa- that says basically, if you don't agree with, if you don't support your party 100% of the time, then you're failing. That's not what journalists are supposed to do. It's also not where the public is. Trump was not a family guy because of that. I mean, the, the Republican Party more or less has kind of abandoned the, you know, the position it took in the Clinton era, which was it's gross to, you know, grow White House interns and all of that. Like, I think going after Clinton failed and there was a retreat from that. Trump heralded it be like because they supported Trump, they couldn't say, like, we're the party of family values anymore. That made it difficult. But I do think the public and there was a sense that because Trump won, like you couldn't rally the public around it. But I do think that that may change with all of this turpitude, essentially, on both sides and that Biden is as bad as Trump in certain ways in terms of the embrace of ostensible family values. At the very least, that individuals can be judged on their own behavior. And th- and this and by the way, this is what a, a broken system produces. A broken system produces a world in which you don't judge your own. One of my many repeated annoying pleas is that in the press, it's very hard to find what Maureen Dow did. You don't see very much of what Maureen Dow did, which is to, with an open face, and a fair kind of inquiry, ask tough questions of people who your audience, who's, who are on the side of your audience or on whose side your audience is. We talked about Brett Baer's interview with Donald Trump, this piece coming from the New York Times. You don't see that very often, right? You don't see tough, challenging questions. And the toughest, most challenging questions for people in power come from the people on their own side. That's where the tough questions come from, because they're asked in the right framing. And the criticism of the right to the left doesn't do any good. The criticism of the left to the right doesn't do any good because it's easily ignored. No one no one on the right will say, man, did you read that Michael Tomaski piece? It really it really set me straight. It really set me straight about how I think about Bidenomics. Instead, it's just there to soothe the people who already agree with him. And that's beneath the standards that journalism should be pursuing. All right. We are on to our Fox bucket here. Fox bucket. And our first item is from the New York Times about the Fox News empire's posture towards Ron DeSantis. Ronnie D. Yes. And the headline is DeSantis confronts a Murdoch empire no longer quite so supportive. The Florida governor has faced tough questions and critical coverage lately from Fox News and other conservative outlets in a sign of growing skepticism. And in this case, I think this is reflective of the broader political landscape's posture towards DeSantis, I think, is one of growing skepticism. But the Times reports that whereas Fox was was two months ago hostile to Trump, he couldn't get on the air over there. And Remember when Trump announced the New York Post, part of Murdoch's empire, wrote Florida man. Yeah. yeah. Florida man makes announcement. And they wanted to full throatedly endorse DeSantis. That's not the case anymore. Do you remember? Oh, and and there's also this nugget that 
The Times reports that Rupert Murdoch is saying that he wants Glenn Youngkin to get in the race. Leah, let's read that part. Over the last week, DeSantis has confronted noticeably tougher questions in interviews with two of the network's hosts, Will Kane and Maria Bartiromo, who pressed him on his anemic poll numbers and early campaign struggles. It was a striking shift for a network that for years has offered Mr. DeSantis a safe space. The media mogul, and this is about uh, Murdoch, likes to watch political races play out, even live tweeting reactions to one of the Republican presidential debates during the 2016 election. Mr. Murdoch has privately told people that he would still like to see Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia enter the race, according to a person with with knowledge of the remarks, and he has made clear in private discussions over the last two years that he thinks Mr. Trump, despite his popularity with Fox News viewers, is unhealthy for the Republican Party. Okay, that we knew, but the Youngkin tidbit is newsy. So here's the thing about that. If Glenn Youngkin runs for president, what will happen inherently is that as you get closer to November, when he says that he would make a decision uh, after the Virginia uh, off-year in-state elections, if you do that, leading up to it, buzz will increase. Rich dudes will say more good things about Glenn Youngkin. There will be a lot of media coverage. And then Glenn Youngkin will get in the race. And it will be hard, right? Even in even in the best-case scenario, it would be hard. And what when do you remember when Rupert Murdoch was enthusiastic about Rand Paul? I remember. I feel like the the party goes through these phases where there's a kind of a hot ideology or a trendy right. ideology. And Rand Paul was that person in 2014, 2015. Yes. And everyone wanted to interview him. And so, of course, and this the, uh, I've mentioned it here before, but the hilarious Time Magazine front page. Can this man save the Republican yes. Party? It said of Rand Paul. And Rupert Murdoch went to the Kentucky Derby with him. And it was this was this was a thing. And then, of course, Rand Paul got on a debate stage. And, and I it, traveled down the and Meet the Press was there, too. A bunch of reporters. Rand Paul took a, a harem, basically, yes. reporters down to Guatemala with him while he did eye surgery on people, and I followed down. And actually, the piece I wrote, which we should link, I'll pull that up, was about, it It, it cast pretty a pretty skeptical note on the idea that this guy would be would become president. But there was a lot of media interest. Um, and then he got on a he debate stage. he got 15 stage. reporters and following And then he got up. on a debate yes, stage exactly. with Chris Christie. And uh, Rand Paul was Chris Christie's first victim because the two of them got into a contretemps on the in the first debate and the my point being Ron DeSantis was not going to match the expectations that had been set for him no matter what Glenn Youngkin might do great but he won't match the expectations being set for him when he gets in and that's the nature that's the nature of things right that's the nature of running for president and the idea that many people had in it wasn't just Fox but that many people had that you could just trade out Trump for DeSantis and skip what's about to happen it is preposterous. The debates are were a little more than a month away from the first debate. And who would have said, if I would have said six months ago, well, there's a guy, his name is Vivek Ramaswamy, and he's going to cause serious disruption for the presidential campaigns of Ron DeSantis and others in Iowa. He's going to be real trouble for these folks. People would have said, no, 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 no. See, it's going to be like this. This is just your weekly reminder. Avoid straight line projections and remember that running for president is hard and it sucks.
What's next in our Fox book? Gavin here? Newsom loves, he can't stop. He hates Fox, but he can't stop watching. Did you see this? I saw it. The best was that he accused it of, Fox is the cause, actually, of the mental health breakdowns in this country. Tell RFK Jr. Oh, my gosh. Get these two together. We'll clean up the water and get Fox off the air. Who knew? This was an interview with, again, Jen Psaki on MSNBC. He, he says, where illusion rules and not facts. Should we play the clip? Yeah, let's hear it. They're so upset about the messaging on the other side, the anger industry, the entertainment wing, particularly of the Republican Party, the surround sound on Fox with these, you know, I don't even like saying his name, Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. or that other, I don't even know, the guy from the, I mean, it's just like they're all the same. And one American news and Newsmax and, and what they're doing to divide this country to, you know, where illusion rules, not facts. Gosh. Do you occasionally turn on Fox no. time and see what happens no. just to see? Not occasionally. Um, every night. Every night. And do you think Democrats should still be appearing on Fox or should they not be appearing? On Fox? Uh, it contributes to the mental health crisis in the state. So on the basis of one's own personal <laughs> conditions, I would not recommend it. I have a question. How many of Fox's viewers are like Gavin Newsom? Watching Fox all the time. Hate, but hate viewing, right? I think it's a non, we know it's a not, it's not, it's non-zero, but I think it's probably pretty significant, right? In the same way, I think there are probably plenty of, probably not as many, people on the right who watch CNN or watch MSNBC to hate on it. But I think there's a bunch of Fox viewers who are watching from the same outlook that Gavin Newsom does. I don't disagree with that in that I am one of the hate viewers of (laughs) CNN. MSNBC is like too boring, but I totally, I totally agree. I don't think it's a big number in that, like, I do this for a living. So I, you know, it's, it's quote unquote work, but I do the same thing. I want to know what they're saying so I can talk about it. Okay. Tucker Carlson, speaking of Tucker Carlson, a mean an unfair, maybe, story, but that points to something that we talked about here. Newsweek, how's Twitter working out for Tucker Carlson, which points out that his viewership, so as we talked about here when he did his first Twitter TV show. Oh, I thought this was actually a good story. Sorry. Go ahead. I mean, the story is about, it. it it's stupid in that it's tracking the precise number of viewers on the Twitter thing, which is difficult quite to know based on Announcement the way Announcement video, 134.1 million. But it makes the point, okay, the numbers are going down, and it's hard to know exactly, but I do think that his his relevance in public life has gone down. Like, it's impossible to argue with that point. Having given up his platform on Fox, like, we just don't, I, I don't, feel and it will be interesting to see what happens when he hosts this roundtable with the presidential candidates but thus yeah. far his relevance in public life has gone down I got I got to say it's incontestable that I think both Mike Pence and Tim Scott are participating in because when Tucker Carlson was still at Fox the family leader in Iowa which is the you know social cons- the social conservative organization I believe it's the family leader got him as the moderator for their event. They've kept him. And I got to say, if I'm Mike Pence or Tim Scott, I think Ronnie D's doing it. Trump is not doing it. I think if I am not DeSantis, I'm nervous about doing this. If, I, if I'm running the campaign for Pence or Scott, 
you don't want to offend the organization in Iowa by dropping out, but the the event seems certainly fraught because of these numbers. And the reason is this. When the show named Tucker on Twitter itself launched on June 6th, it received 120 million views for the first episode, followed by 60.7 million views and 104.2 million for the third. This was followed by a significant slump with the fourth episode on June 15th getting 32 million, then 17.4 million for June 20th, 32.1 million for June 22, just 8.8 million for the eighth and most recent edition published on June 30th. Intermittent online content. I mean, look, that would suggest that three times the number of people who were watching him on Fox are seeing him on Twitter, which I just don't believe because his salience in public life appears to have receded. But I'm not. But but those views are these are two different views. Right. So literally somebody who opens up a Twitter link. Right. And watches some, I assume. That this includes partial views, people who watched part of it, people who opened up and right, en- right. engaged with the media. What, or if it shows up in your feed. and Yeah. What, and uh, what Nielsen ratings, which are deeply flawed, the television advertising world is built on a very deeply flawed metric. But what they're looking for is stickiness and how long do people stay. And getting people night after night, because that's what Carlson was very good at, was getting people night after night to come back, come back, come back and stay. That's and also one of the things, by the way, he was good at was getting a slightly younger demographic, which ain't saying much when you're talking about cable news, but a slightly younger demographic to come in. The reason these numbers would make me nervous if I was running Scott or Pence's campaign, which is if Carlson is reaching, right, if he feels the need to be even more of a controversialist, what is to stop him from just taking the hide off of Mike Pence over Ukraine? What is to stop him from going after Tim Scott on similar issues? And I, I don't know. It's this is it, I have to I have to say, I'm gonna watch. And I don't watch a lot of I don't watch a lot of that stuff. I'm gonna watch that. Is there a chance that you're giving too much ground to him here in that like it a little bit of an opportunity for them to go and tell him that he's completely wrong on these issues and that I, I, I do believe ho- doing hostile media can be very good. I'm just saying that if I was the and cam- to make the case, if I, if you get into the I think what makes this more complicated, if you go on The View and get into a fight with Sonny Hostin, agree, you're like, it's all it's all wins. If you go on with Tucker Carlson, who is a political figure in addition to being a media figure. I agree with all that. And he's got a followship. He's got there, there, there's more there. And if you alienate those voters, that comes at a real cost. So I, I don't know. It's it's a fraught space. I agree. But maybe as he was with Russell Brand. I know. Maybe as he was with Russell Brand, he will be conciliatory toward some of the establishment interests that he was railing against more recently. We'll see. Okay, up next, we have the New York Times reporting on the case that could be Fox's next Dominion. Oh, my gosh, this guy. This is also Tucker-related in that they write that on his programs, Mr. Carlson claimed, and this is about Ray Epps, whom Tucker accused of being an FBI plant in the January 6th protest. On his programs, Mr. Carlson claimed that Mr. Epps was a liar and demanded that he be arrested. In one segment that ran shortly before Fox News canceled Mr. Carlson's show in April, 
he showed viewers an image of the FedEx logo that had been altered to say FedEx. Yet for more than 18 months, Mr. Carlson insisted that the lack of charges against Mr. Epps could mean only one thing, that he was being protected because he was a secret government agent. There was, quote, no rational explanation, Mr. Carlson told his audience, why this, quote, mysterious figure who helped stage manage the insurrection, unquote, had not been charged. And so the now Ray Epps is preparing to bring defamation charges, it appears, against Fox News. He has retained counsel. And the piece is about that. And so we will track how that proceeds. The, the, the Times writes that lawyers representing Mr. Epps and his wife are proceeding with plans to sue Fox News for defamation. We informed Fox in March that if they did not issue a formal on-air apology, that we would pursue all available avenues to protect the Epps' rights. Can that be? Is that possible that Fox would not give them an apology? <laughs> is that possible? Um I, I mean, the lawyer says so, but if all they wanted was a on-air apology, how would they not give him this apology? Unless there's something here that I'm missing, this seems like an easy, an easy one. And it also seems like that kind of undercuts their case if they say we would have accepted an apology, but now we want how much? I didn't see a dollar figure. I didn't figure see a dollar Did figure. I miss that? I didn't see a dollar figure, but it seems like maybe go ahead and, and get somebody on, on the old TV out there and apologize to Mr. Epps. Woof. Oh, I, there are many ways that Politico writing, I, I, the Politicoification of, of political journalism has many, many faces. But here is a paragraph. Here's a story and a paragraph that, to me, captures what's wrong with it. The testosterone primary of 2024 is, quote, getting out of hand. More than a month before the election cycle's first debates, the 2024 presidential contest has careened into a kind of testosterone primary, a frenetic fit boy summer side quest in which candidates are drawing fewer contrasts on policy and proving more keen on comparing feats of strength. Brawn and bravado are in demand, particularly among a GOP base conditioned by a steady dose of both in the Trump era. Thirst traps are a new wedge issue. Now, I must say, it's some pretty good tabloid, like that's some pretty good purple prose. What is to support, what, what is to support this? Now, certainly the anti-trans but weirdly homoerotic Ron DeSantis Twitter video might might suggest this. But in terms of what actually suggests this is going on, it's pretty thin. And by the way, if your if your star witness on this is Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who challenged Vivek Ramaswamy to a 5K, if that's what counts as fit boy. Oh, summer, my gosh. I am the raging testosterone. The raging testosterone. Uh Try to bra brace yourself from these thirst traps. These thirst traps, Suarez and I mean, Ramaswamy. I'm so happy I don't. I'm not forced to write about these feats of insane masculinity. This is definitely. This was definitely <laughs> a a scene, a, a style piece uh, gone awry. Chris, are we getting to our Supreme Court portion of the right after oh, this? Oh, right uh, after yes, this. Yes, I don't care about this one. So good, we can get to our Supreme Court. The I'm, I'm going to use this to like rest my. Uh -huh. Rest my mouth. I, I, I appreciate your generous collegiality. Yes. <laughs> How today's Twitter has made conservative boycotts more successful. Megan McArdle, the great Megan McArdle writing in The Washington Post, 
if you if you wanted to understand, and I like this piece so much because it answered a, a disjointed question that was in my mind about this stuff and what's going on with the boycott moment, what's going on with all of that stuff. It's very good, and I recommend it highly. Well, that was quick. There you go. Okay. You didn't have time to even eat another orange. No. <laughs> all right, Chris, I am here to announce we have reached we have reached rock bottom. I didn't think we'd get here. I didn't think we'd get here, but we have hit bottom of Supreme Court Clarence Thomas coverage. Thank you to The Guardian, but close second to The New York Times for bringing us to this moment. The New York Times, and I read every word of this. This must have been a 10,000-word piece by Abby Van Sickle and Steve Eder Eater, where Clarence Thomas entered an elite circle and opened a door to the court. This 10,000-word piece is about Clarence Thomas's membership in the dun-dun-dun-dun evil music. Horatio dun, dun, dun. Alger Society, okay? Society that celebrates people who were born poor and became rich in the greatest country in the world. At Horatio Alger, he moved into the inner circle, a cluster of extraordinarily wealthy, largely conservative members who lionized him and all that he had achieved. While he has never held an official leadership position, in some ways he has become the association's leading light. He has granted it unusual access to the Supreme Court, where every year he presides over the group's signature event, a ceremony in the courtroom at which he places Horatio Alger medals around the necks of new lifetime members. One entrepreneur called it the closest thing to being knighted in the United States. I don't know. Do, do you think he'll ever recover from this? Uh, the attacks on the Horatio Alger Society, and I have been to the Horatio Alger Society dinner, you may agree or disagree with their worldview or all that stuff, but they give scholarships to kids. They give amazing full ride, all expenses included scholarships to promising kids who were disadvantaged. And it seems like a very good thing. And the part of the story that I found most frustrating was that it basically said, this worldview is what's wrong with Clarence Thomas, Right. That the, the idea that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps, that you could have a Horatio Alger story, is why he doesn't support affirmative action. It's why he doesn't support government interventions because of this worldview. And I thought it was, you know, it was cheap and lazy. Well, I found that to be actually that part of it to be totally unsurprising and in keeping because that was the views that the dissenting justices in the affirmative action case argued that. The view espoused by Clarence Thomas is essentially a racist view and offensive to them and so on. So that part wasn't as surprising to me. But the idea that this is a this is news and that this should be this is in some way damaging to him was was amusing to me, but not as amusing, actually, as the Guardian piece, which somebody sent to me, I believe, yesterday. And that I thought was from the Babylon Bee because the headline in the Guardian piece was. Lawyers with Supreme Court business paid Clarence Thomas aid via Venmo. Now, who are these lawyers? You who might are these lawyers? wonder. Several lawyers who have had business before the Supreme Court, including one who successfully argued to end race-conscious admissions at universities, paid money to a top aide to Justice Clarence Thomas, according to the aide's Venmo transactions. Whoa, that sounds bad. 
Sounds bad the to payments me. payments appear to have been made in connection to Thomas's 2019 Christmas party. The payments were for $50, and they were from for- Thomas's former clerks for the clerk Christmas party. The amount of the payments is not disclosed, but the purpose of each payment is listed as either Christmas party, Thomas Christmas party, CT Christmas party, or CT Xmas party, in an apparent reference to the justice justice's initials. However, it remains unclear what the funds were used for. I wonder what it could be. I wonder what, what it could, could it be? be. So the lawyer with business before the court was, you know, he's a former Thomas clerk. Well, that's I mean, even worse. He's 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 a secret agent who f- has connections to Clarence Thomas. Dude, how deep does this go, Eliana? Now who's being naive? I would be embarrassed to be writing these stories. You are so obviously a pawn of a desperate political movement trying to of a movement trying to score political points. It's it's embarrassing. It's also cashing in on it's 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 the the feeding when the feeding frenzy so is playing itself out, which is you're like anything that you've got on this subject, we want. Whatever you've got. Well, I've got some Venmo payments. You're like, oh, how much is it? It's $50 for a Christmas party. And I think I might have made up the $50 figure. I don't want to say something that's not true. So hold on. Let me just make sure. Because they said it's unclear what the amounts were for. All right. I don't. I I made that up. Okay. Okay, Could have been more than $50. All right. Okay, Chris, take us away. Okay. Where are we? What are we We are at fight or flight. Transgender care bans leave families and doctors scrambling. Tell me about it. All right. This was also a New York Times piece and just annoyed me because it was about these states where transgen where gender transitions for minors have been outlaws. The Times writes doctors have hastily shut down practices in recent months, leaving patients in the lurch. And it, it's a big expose. And it just, you know, the thought that I had was like the number of people actually in this situation is, you know, not in the hundreds, I don't think. And the amount of ink spilled on it is so disproportionate to the number of people affected by the issue that it's absurd. The the attention and interest in transgenderism is so far out of line with the number of human beings that it affects. And we could say that about a lot of things in the news, I suppose. But the, in, in this case, it's pretty it's pretty wild and by the way to be both sides this it it that definitely the the amount of attention that and i understand why sex is involved right taboo is involved anytime you have both sex you have sex or sexuality and taboo involved that's going to be that's going to be hashtag content and it's i'm frankly well, here's a great example. CN, did you know that CNN was called out? Did you hear that CNN was called out, Eliana, for misgendering Dylan Mulvaney? Did you hear? Have you heard the news about for not, for not using they them? Yeah, uh, this piece. From, and I'm sure. I'm sure they apologized very. Well, quickly. they had. Well, it took. It took time. It took a surprising amount of time uh, for CNN to apologize after being called out. Where were they called out? Twitter. Well, that's huh. exactly right. They were called out oh, yeah. on Twitter. As a matter of fact, uh, in the oh, yeah. in the wretches bingo card, we might even say that people took to Twitter to call out we CNN. We bingo card. They, they took to Twitter to call out. And you know what this article is? It's a bunch of tweets. This article, including, I don't know, 10 tweets from activists or uh, anonymous mammals online, 
to denounce the fact that CNN correspondent Ryan Young, listen to this, listen to this lead. CNN correspondent Ryan Young drew online outrage. Oh, no, online outrage for his coverage on the Bud Light Dylan Mulvaney controversy after he misgendered the transgender influence. The failure to use Mulvaney's preferred pronoun of they happened on Tuesday when Young was on CNN News Central to cover the ongoing backlash Bud Light has faced ever since their promotional partnership with the TikTok star. By the way, CNN also did a story where they went to, I think, Kid Rock's bar who had denounced Bud Light but was still serving. He's still serving Bud Light. What about that, Kid Rock? The report was a continuation of Young's previous Bud Light coverage. (laughs) By the way, if you're beat, if you're a reporter and your beat is Bud Light controversy coverage, think it through. Think it through. During which he found that the beer was, oh, was available at Kid Rock's bar in Nashville, despite the rockers' clear sign-on for boycotting the company. After airing some man-on-the-street interviews with people about the controversy, Young twice referred to Mulvaney as he while addressing other reactions he heard. It was also at this point that Young slipped up while enunciating Mulvaney's first name. Oh, it goes deeper than I ever knew. That never happens to me, by the way. That never, it never happens to anybody except for Dylan Mulvaney. That's the only person that anybody ever gets their name wrong. We even talked to a bar in Chicago. One bar was telling us they're not going to serve Bud Light because they don't like the way Mulvaney was treated after this whole controversy started. He, of course, is the transgender person they were going to sponsor and go along with. They didn't like how Bud Light didn't stand by him after all this. I, I just have to say, the story is dumb. The story about the story is dumb. The story about the story about the story is dumb. Just stop it. Just, st- if you, Dylan Mulvaney had their moment in the sun. They had their time. He had his. Can't we all move on from this question? All right. All right. Up next. Oh, boy, yeah. Up next. Climate crisis. Chris, take it away. Kidney st- Did you hear? Kidney stones are rising among children and teens, especially girls research show, because hotter summers cause more kidney stones. So climate change is doing many bad things. At this point. But who's hardest hit? Children and teen, especially girls. So climate change. Oh, I thought it was going to be minorities. Well, obviously, I had sure, my I had minorities I'm, on I'm my sh- bingo I'm card. Sh- I'm sure if we uh, dove deeper with Dr. Christina Carpenter, interim chief of pediatric urology at the New York Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, <laughs> that's great. Uh, that is great. Oh my god! Uh, said she has already been treating more children with kidney stones in the summer. Studies have found that the number of people seeking medical care for kidney stones increases as daily temperatures rise. Other research shows that in the southeastern U.S., known as the kidney stone belt, did you know that that, that I didn't know I went to college in the kidney stone belt, <laughs> um, has as much as a 50 percent higher prevalence of kidney stones in the, the disease than in the northwest. One 2008 study predicted the belt will inevitably expand upward with the fraction of U.S. population living in high risk zones growing from 40% to 70% by 20, 2095. By, so somebody has made a prediction about where the trouble belt for kidney stones will be as a result of climate change in 2095. So good to know. That's not it. That's not it. The New York Times says, but you already knew this, climate disasters daily, question mark, welcome to the new normal. As climate disasters <laughs> become more commonplace, they may be losing their shock value. 
even if you get a kidney stone from them. As 29, a 2019 study concluded that people learn to accept extreme weather as normal in as little as two years. This is not, this is not just a complicated issue, but it's competing for attention in a dynamic, uncertain, complicated world, said Anthony Lacerowitz, director of the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. Oh, your alma whoa. mater. Wow. Whoa, 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 whoa. Followed by the Washington Post. The New York Times is not to be outdone by the Washington Post. A dip in the ocean this summer? Well, this is no thanks. This is Colin Chicola found this for us, and it is, I must say, of a summertime of the summertime variety of slow news cycle moments and scare tactics. This is Mara Judkis writes. Here's the headline: A dip in the ocean this summer? Question mark. No thanks. Period. With its relentless riptides, attack orcas, surprise sharks, and horrifying tales of the very deep, the Big Blue Sea gets a great big nope. Now, on the one hand, you could say that this is being cute, right? You could say that this is adorable journalism in which she's arching her eyebrow uh, in the Alexandra Petri kind of snarky blah, 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 blah. But I would also say that this is the kind of, do you remember? No, you're not old enough for this. I think it was 2004 when the Associated Press ran a story that was headlined, everything is seemingly spiraling out of control. And it was about wildfires here and the, and the Iraq war. Look at just everything is terrible. Basically the point of it was, doesn't it seem, and this is a very like, I say this as a proud member of Generation X, as you get older, it's very tempting to say, but both as you get older and when you're very young, the temptation to say, doesn't it seem like everything is just awful now? Doesn't it seem like everything is a crisis? Doesn't it seem like everything's a problem? That lazy way of thinking, that ahistorical lazy way of thinking is perfectly encapsulated in this anti-ocean, the, <laughs> the Washington Post coming out against the ocean. Thank you, Colin. We're, we're now on guard against attack orcas. Now, are you ready to talk about sports news? Are you ready to talk about sports journalism, Eliana? I'm ready to talk about this first story. Okay. The New York it goes in my book, don't care bucket. So you're ready to talk about it because you're not going to talk about um, it? Well, New York Times disbanding its sports department. I mean, in what way does this impact me at all? So or my care. Well, you're not a sport. You're not a sp- pleasure in the brain you're, pleasure center you're not a you're not a sports fan i am a basketball fan and yes i am a basketball fan and the and my nba husband, the national uh, basketball not really oh, the okay. nba but college my husband has fun. gotten me into college basketball i enjoy watching it i may have a harder time with other stuff but and if anything i like sports journalism but yeah, i'm not like going to the sports section every day okay so after the New York Times purchased. Did they purchase the Athletic? Yes. Okay. It was, and and then they they purchased the Athletic, which was the successor. We talked here last week about ESPN cratering as the layoffs deepen, and because of the competition that they have faced from other purveyors of live sports, as Apple and Amazon and others are moving into the live sports area because live sports is one of the few things that you can get people to actually sign up for. Colin, do you remember Grantland? Mm-hmm. 
So that was ESPN's, I believe, ESPN's effort at long-form journalism. They did the 30 for 30, which was, by the way, internet, if you have not watched the 30 for 30 about O.J. Simpson, do it today. It's called, I think it's called Made in America. I forget what it, what it's called, but it is one of the best pieces. It just as journalism generally, but as sports journalism, it is truly spectacular. So the New York Times had obviously a big and important sports section. But here's what is interesting. When they had The Athletic, which is a national sports magazine, basically service or magazine, I read it every day. I read The Athletic every day. And I read The Athletic every day because they give me the news that I want in detail about the St. Louis Cardinals, the West Virginia University Mountaineers, a little bit the Penguins, and a little bit the Steelers. And other than that, I don't care. I do not. I am not a person who wants to read the. Although I did send you Nate that the Peter Gammons piece that was so good, but I, look, I like some, but I I just want the stuff about my teams and I want to know what's going on with my teams. I'm a I'm a parochial kind of sports fan, and the Athletic does that. Do you know what the New York Times sports section never wanted to be? A New York sports section, right? The Post okay. and the da- the Post and the Daily News want to be hometown sports sections, right? You want to know what's going on with the Jets and right, the Mets? Right, okay. Right, you got to go here. And then if you want to know. Chris, you were like, oh, so you want to talk about this to say you don't have anything to say? Like, like I could say anything along these lines, like analyze the different sports sections of the different papers. So when they spun out the athletic, the or took on the athletic and kept it as a standalone and didn't bring it in as part of the New York Times, Tensions flared between their unionized sports department and the paper over what is the deal with the athletic. And then the paper this week lowered the boom and they're just shutting down the New York Times sports section. I, and I have heard a lot of remonstration about this shutdown. And I will share with you the not. Not surprisingly, oh, by the way, the Washington Post dunking on this. The Washington Post, which does actually have some pretty good sports coverage, the Washington Post enjoyed dunking on it. But here is the the editorial from, or the opinion piece from the Pointer Institute. We should have seen it coming. The New York Times dismantles its sports section, sports department. The section has a rich history of dazzling writing and dogged reporting that made for provocative, entertaining, and important storytelling. And it go this piece by Tom Jones goes on goes on with this deep lamentation. A sad day, it says. Reaction inside the Times Sports Department was one of profound sadness. I spoke with several staffers Monday who were heartbroken by the news. Several used the same phrase, a sad day, in their story for the Times. And this is this the piece that the Times wrote about it was very good. The Sports of the Times column was started by John Kieran in nineteen twenty seven and would later include a distinguished group of writers, including Robert Lipset, William Roden. Harvey Ayrton, George Vesey, Ira Burkow, three Sports of the Times columnists, Arthur Daly, Red Smith, and Dave Anderson have won Pulitzer Prizes for their sports writing. Another sports reporter, John Branch, won a Pulitzer Prize in 2013 for his feature on a deadly avalanche in Washington State. And the New York Times sports section is storied and did do those things. But it has not been a real newspaper sports section. It And I assume that New York Times can still report on things related to sports, I just, I, I hate to see any journalist lose their job. I hate to see a good journalist lose their job, but I feel like maybe we're overstating 
the historical institutional significance of, or others are, you are not, but that <laughs> others are overstating. The I got it right with don't care. The historical significance of the New York Times sports section. And I like the Atlanta. I like the athletic. I think the athletic is good. And I'm, I, I suppose, again, this speaks to my parochialism, but I think I get it. Okay. We wanted to give a shout out to Northwestern University's Heck yeah. student newspaper for breaking the news of the school's football praising, hazing program. And the student paper released a report which included direct accusations of the coach's knowledge of the hazing program. And the university president said in a statement, quote, I believe I may have erred in weighing the appropriate sanction. They got their man. After that, more allegations came to light, including former players saying they experienced instances of racism from coaches and teammates. At the same time, allegations of bullying and abusive behavior cropped up against Northwestern's baseball coach. With the university spinning into damage control, they, they fired the coach on Monday, ending his 17-year tenure. Okay. Good job, Daily Northwestern. Okay. That brings us to... It's your time. Done, done, done. After the sports section, a a after I'm done with my section of the paper, it's yes, time for Eliana's. Finally, finally, the style section. And I did take out, unfortunately, but go to her, tw I go to her feed. I took out my favorite style item of the week, which was Bethany Frankel doing an unboxing of her new Chanel bag that is a birdcage. We'll put the link in the and show notes. We'll put the link in the show it's notes. It's so awesome. That's a word right. that you could use to describe it. So awesome. <laughs> She's like in wet hair and pajamas unboxing her, her birdcage bag. I, in, I included this item from Variety. Vice TV sets Dark Side of the 2000s episodes on The Bachelor, Lindsay Lohan, and more in here as a follow-up files on whatever happened to what was going to happen to Vice. Remember, Went bankrupt and, and was being sold to. to and somebody. and now it's back as VH1. Basically, now it now it's back well, as. I laud this because I will be watching. You will be watching. The I will 10 be watching the ten episodes season. covering odd subjects, including the radio wars between Howard Stern and Opie and Anthony. Yes, check. TRL. Yes, check. The rise of TNZ. Check. Lindsay Lohan. Check. Charlie Sheen's Two and a Half Men Conflict. Oh, yes. John and Kate plus eight. Yes, yes, yes. The Bachelor, Siegfried and Roy, and Men's Lifestyle Magazine. How is this the dark or side? Lads, Lad Mags. Oh, my had gosh. We, had we been told, though, that the decade of the 2000s was a, that the aughts so were a, a time of, bri of bright lights and, and, and good feelings? Was nine, what was it, 9 11? So the good. invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq? Was it the subprime mortgage lending crisis? The idea that, like, take take your blinkers off. It wasn't so great back in the aughts seems like an interesting premise to me. So good. All right. Loved it. All right. And. Oh, this is fabulous. The Huffington Post. Which fabulous. Which like we never talk about on here because why would we? I started a nudist magazine. I didn't expect how badly I'd be treated. I'd be treated because of it. I became aware of World Naked Gardening Day in 2018. At some point in history, a group of passionate nudists declared that we, the people of Earth, should dedicate a day to getting naked and weeding. I was fascinated. Okay. The photos here are troubling. I ain't clicking. The photos. The photos. Here, I ain't clicking. The photos here are. No, thank you. 
are has has a real Dennis Franz quality to the the photos here. And I want to say, I'm sure it has not been fun for the author to feel the the burn, the stigma of starting a nudist magazine. I'm sure it hasn't been fun, but it's a nudist magazine. What did you expect? Did you expect that people would say, hey, that's awesome. I've been looking for a new place to look at pictures of people's hairy backsides. This is interesting and fascinating. No, it's nudists. That's a niche. That is a super niche. That is the niche of the niche. Now, if they did have, you know, useful tips in there, like how to fry bacon in the nude, things that are, you know, that help nudists deal with things, maybe he did some public good. Chris. He never saw it coming. It is that time for our Obsessions of the Week. Where we break down the stories that can't get out of our heads. And I'm going to start because this really pissed me off. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Jake Tapper comes out and defends CNN's town hall with Trump, which is a fine point of view. And he's on with Kara Swisher. He's on with Kara Swisher and says the following. What about Trump's lies? How do you change again? This is the third election, presumably, from 2016. Many thought the media laid down their job. 2020, may have the media didn't necessarily. How do you do it? Um, how do you cover him as a normal candidate? Well, he's not a normal candidate. Yeah. He's not. He's a former U.S. president. So h- one, how do you cover his, him? As he is. We cover him as he is. Uh He's the leading Republican nominee, and he says things that are not true. Uh, but we have to cover him. We can't ignore him. We can't pretend he's not there. We can't pretend he's not leading uh, in the polls for his party's nomination. We have to explain why. We have to talk about the issues that uh, people find compelling. Not two years ago, this was the man who declared that he would not have any Republican who raised questions about the sanctity of the 2020 election on his show, which also fine to stand on your high horse, but these two views, these two stances cannot exist side by side. And were Jake Tapper to submit himself to an interview with us, that would be the first question I would how submit to him. would be, how do you reconcile? How do you reconcile those two views? Because I would say about the election denying, you know, so-called Republicans, such including Kevin McCarthy and others, he is banned from his air. You can't pretend they're not there. You can't pretend that they're not a part of the American political landscape. You have to explain why. You have to talk about the issues people find compelling. It's the exact same thing. And that, and by the way, they're a big part of the reason Trump is leading in the polls. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. All right. I, that was my obsession. I have good news in my obsession. Howard Husak? Husak. He's my colleague. I should pronounce his name better. Husak. Yes? Husak. Nate Moore told me it was Husak. So, Howard, I apologize. If not, take it out on Nate. But you can feel free to call me Steerwalt whenever you want. But the piece, Could News Bloom in News Deserts, is excellent, useful, and cause for optimism. His piece here at the American Enterprise Institute lays out what happened and what's going on. And there is considerable good news in the area of local news. He lays these out. First, local news operations may be moving to a new business model, 
one that relies on a mix of financial supports. These include advertising in print and online, in many cases, subscriptions, grants, and donations. So this is the the many, many feed stocks. In this survey, 55% were funded by advertising, 25% were funded by subscriptions, 62% funded by donations, 44% funded by grants, and 11% were funded by local sponsorships, and 11% funded by other means. Second, reporting on local government is a focus for all but one of the new, and I, it's hundreds of new local newspapers that have that have sprung up. Reporting on local government is a focus for all but one of the new local news operations that responded to our survey. Stories about local government came up often when we asked sites which stories they were most proud of. Third, a smaller group of news sites complement traditional daily news, which includes coverage of local government with enterprise reporting. That is, stories based on reporter initiative. 69% of our respondents provided examples of such stories when asked about the stories they are most proud of. Fourth, although the term news desert has become associated with rural settings, this framing can be misleading. Most of the papers that responded were located in counties containing a sizable city. In some cases, these papers served more remote areas adjacent to the city, but others reported on local news for some of the nation's biggest cities. Put another way, the establishment of news sites in metropolitan areas suggests that their locations were underserved by larger news organizations, that they fill gaps in local news coverage. And finally, 46% of the new uh, local news sites that responded have partnered with local public radio operations in some way. Of the papers that were with such partnership, 15% are for-profit and 31% are nonprofit. So Howard H., I want to thank you for this piece, for putting some data out there. It's useful and it's encouraging. So thanks loads. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And our first letter is from Joel Stewart from Guthrie, Oklahoma. And oh, Joel boy. writes about climate change, squirrel hunters, hardest hit. Love the show and the news item about climate change affecting squirrel behaviors was right up my alley. Squirrel splooting doesn't just help them cool off. It makes them harder to pick out on a tree branch. Ideally, for a squirrel hunter like myself, a squirrel would sit up on the branch with his tail up like a flag at Casa Bonita. Awesome. A splooting squirrel is a ghost and most likely won't end up in the crockpot. What happens when when squirrels don't have their numbers thinned out? Population explodes. Only this time, natural selection creates a population of mega splooters. Mega splooter. Who can't be hunted, hunted effectively. Can't you see where this will end up? I'll have to start eating beef instead of squirrel, which, you guessed it, will make the situation even worse. I feel like I'm going to turn into a redneck Greta Thunberg. Joel Stewart, you, you, I, I love you, man. That's, that's a fantastic letter. Have you ever eaten squirrel? No. Squirrel is, has anybody here eaten squirrel? Jay, you've eaten squirrel? No plans. Way to go, Jay. All right. You wouldn't think that the California person would be here for squirrel, but squirrel is, did you find it relishing? Squirrel is quite good. Squirrel is fun to hunt, good to eat. I give it five tails up. It's it's great. How many splutes? I mean, that's five that's five out of five splutes. And I I learned that you could hunt squirrels out of a John boat going down a river and watch them go out across the branches and, and shoot. And it's a pl- very, it's a very pleasant way to shoot and it's delicious to eat. So I'm there with you, Joel Stewart on squirrels. Okay. Um, <laughs> is that the opposite of Bethany Frankel? Yeah. Okay. This is not a Chanel unboxing. 
Our next note is from Brian Berkey in Pennsylvania, and Brian writes, Dear Wretches, at Mr. Starwalt's invitation, I am I am hereby correcting the record regarding oh, the single-season home run record in baseball between 1876 and 1900, when the only major baseball league in the country was the National League. Edward Nagel, Ned Williamson, had 27 home runs for the 1884 Chicago White Stockings. The American League became a major league with the 1901 season, although it wasn't until 1903 that the first World Series was played between NL and AL, or National League and American League. Between 1901 and George Herman Babe Ruth, the single-season home run records were as follows. American League, Ralph Orlando Sox, Sabold, 16 home runs for the 1902 Philadelphia A's. National League. Clifford Carlton Gavi Cravath, 24 home runs for the 1915 Philadelphia Phillies. Ruth hit 29 for the Boston Red Sox in 1919 to set a new MLB record. He would then beat his own record by hitting 54 in 1920 and 59 in 1921 before his fabled 60 in the 1927 season. (laughs) John Franklin home run baker played in the majors between 1908 and 1922 and never hit more than 12 homers in a single season. Although it is true that he led the American League in home runs in each of the 1911, 12, 13, and 14 seasons while playing for the Philadelphia A's. Be advised that I have notified Nina Jankowitz of this attempted misinformation on the part of your podcast. I My, my deepest apology. I knew it would be true. And Nina Jankowitz, I just looked up, is a former executive director of the Disinformation Governance Board of the United States. So I knew it would be true, Brian Berkey, and I thank you for setting the record straight on the specifics. I, we we are, are educated. Think about this. We have a readership that does span from squirrel splooting, the, the effect to of Bethany. squirrels. Yeah, to Bethany Frankel enthusiasm, to knockoff handbags, to the real story of Home Run Baker. I mean, we got it all. The, the wretches are great. Thank you, wretches. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. When I am forced to say something nice. But as always, lead us by example. Lead me by example. I, I am here to celebrate bravery in journalism whenever I can. And I thought that the Washington Post opinion piece by Christine Emba, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness was brave. It is very hard for people of the left and people at institutions like the Washington Post to talk about what's going on with the crisis, especially in young men these days, right? There's a lot of complaining about young men, but not a lot of discussion about when we look at what's going on with college going rates, when we look at what's going on with suicide, when we look at what's going on with marriage rates, when we look at what's going on with a host of things, we and I use the word advisedly, do see young men in crisis. And what what Ms. Emba does very effectively is talk about this issue in a constructive way that sees that sees the problem. She's wrestling with this problem in a sincere way. And when she says, worrying about the state of our men is an American tradition, but today's problems are real and well-documented. Deindustrialization, automation, free, free trade, and peacetime have shifted the labor market dramatically and not in men's favor. Favor, The need for physical labor has declined while soft skills and academic credentials are increasingly rewarded. Growing numbers of working-age men 
have detached from the labor market. And I, by the way, here would Nick Eberstadt's Men Without Work from the American Enterprise Institute is very good on this point. Growing numbers of working age men have detached from the labor market with the biggest drop in employment among men ages 25 to 34. And she goes on and talks about this problem. And instead of treating men as the problem, she challenges her readers to think about men having a problem, right? And I think that's good. I think it's constructive. I think it took courage to write, and I think it took courage for The Post to publish it. So kudos to them. Well, way to shame me, because mine is not nearly so deep. I loved this piece from the Wall Street Journal, a headline, How to Make Money by Losing $300,000 a Year on Slot Machines. And it's about people who literally make YouTube videos of themselves playing slot machines and other people watch this. And so they are able to compensate for their incredible losses. A new class of niche celebrities have turned the once solitary experience of gambling at casino slot machines into a spectator sport with millions of viewers and fan camaraderie. Using monopods or videographers to film the action, the players spend hours talking audiences through the highs and lows of jackpots and losses. Who would watch that? Oh my gosh, I can see how it'd be so addicting. Like, this is like how kids love videos of unboxing things and like unwrapping candies and stuff. And toys. Well, God bless me. It is, a fa- it is a fascinating piece. Good journalism, and you're right to favorite it. I loved it. And they profile this guy, Christopher. Christopher declined to provide his total revenue, but said he makes enough to turn a profit after paying his staff and the $300,000 in gambling losses. He offers cruise trips through a partnership with Carnival Cruise Lines with as many as 650 fans joining him at sea each trip and gambling together in the onboard casinos. Next year, he has eight cruises with fans lined up that depart from the Texas Gulf Coast, Miami, Los Angeles, and Sydney, Australia. Loved it. What an incredible story. And And we live in weird, a weird world. We live in a a wonderful, weird world, and it's great if you let it be. All right. That is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Do it. Do it.